Understood is a resource I have recommended for many years to parents looking for support with learning and thinking differences such as ADHD, dyslexia, and more. And I'm subsequently excited to tell you about their podcast, Understood Explains. This season, the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Urtube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. They cover topics such as how to tell if your child needs an IEP, common myths about special education, and the difference between IEPs and 504 plans. I love how Understood Explains breaks down the overwhelm by unpacking an important topic each season and then drilling down further into key basics in each episode. Most episodes are between 10 to 15 minutes, and episodes are available in both English and Spanish. So fantastic, right? To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, your host, Christine Coe, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you will come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Hello, friends. I have a great interview for you. I'm welcoming today the wonderful Phyllis Fagel. She is a licensed clinical professional counselor and freelance journalist and also an author. Her first book was Middle School Matters, the 10 Key Skills Kids Need to Thrive in Middle School and Beyond and How Parents Can Help. And her new book is Middle School Superpowers, Raising Resilient Tweens in Turbulent Times. Phyllis is also one of the kindest people I know, the type of person who is always incredibly busy and always seems to hold space and have a listening ear for you. So welcome, Phyllis. I'm so happy to have you on the show today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And I would say the exact same things about you. Oh, oh, it's it's really such a joy. You're like one of my favorite um I mean, I guess we met before the pandemic, but our relationship has grown during the pandemic uh, times. And so I just can't wait to see you again in person sometime soon. But meanwhile, we have the Internet. Yes. And I'm heading to Massachusetts this weekend, so maybe I will see you soon. Oh, yes. Very good. Very good. Well, I had a million potential questions for you, and it was really hard to narrow them down. So I'm going to just go ahead and jump right in and start kind of 101. And right straight up in your introduction, you talk about the overuse of the term resilience and how it's resulted in some maybe confusion and skepticism. So I wanted to ground this conversation in a really basic level and ask you to share what resilience is and why it matters so very much, especially for tweens. So resilience is one of those words that became a catchphrase during the pandemic to the point that people grew tired of it, kind of like words uh, such as pivot. You know, anything that was related to the pandemic in any way started to just sound tiresome. And it also is really misunderstood. Resilience doesn't mean that you never fall down. It means that when things go wrong, you simply get up and put one foot in front of the other, that you maintain your optimism, that you keep experimenting and 
testing out new strategies until you find what works for you, which couldn't be more important Mm -hmm. than during the middle school years when inevitably so many things uh, can go wrong or can feel wrong, even if they are happening exactly as you'd expect developmentally. Yeah, I... (laughs) And this is the, you know, really the framing and setup for your, your book, which I think is so wonderful. And I have another question for you. That's more, um, I guess this is a little bit of a personal question, but it is about parental baggage because I think it kind of colors many things. And I think it's safe to say that everyone carries some kind of baggage from their tween years. One of the things, anytime middle school comes up, in my adult parent conversations is that people will say, oh, middle school is the worst, that kind of thing. And I yes. think that it can get in the way of how we show up for our kids when they're dealing with something tough. I've been dealing with my own little demons just over the last week uh, related to, to my own tween. So I know your book is focused on supporting kids and how we can we as parents can show up better for our kids. But I wonder if you have some kind of top line framing advice for parents and caregivers to help them set aside their baggage in order to focus on the situation at hand with their kids. Sure. And you're exactly right. I do think we bring all of our own baggage to the table, uh, whether they're a tween or any other age, and that can lead us either to opt out or to over-identify, neither of which is particularly helpful to our child. We do want to empathize. We do want to, you know, help coach them and help them figure out what will work for them to help them feel better. But we want to make sure that we are not inadvertently communicating that middle school is this awful time to dread, because if we do, they're actually going to have a worse experience. The most powerful thing that a parent can do, and I've had kids tell me this over and over again, is to model for them that, yes, you hit some bumps in the road. Maybe a friend dropped you. Maybe you didn't make that travel team. Maybe you had to move midway or your parents got divorced. But you kept on putting one foot in front of the other. You kept Mm -hmm. on working toward figuring out what you needed to do to feel emotionally well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That is really good. I'm curious, actually, because so much is rooted in communication, like what your current advice is about like the best way to communicate with kids. Like I, I always thought it was, um, you know, hop in the car, do something together. So you don't have to make eye contact. And then I feel like somebody at one point told me that wasn't the greatest. So do you have like a current line of advice for parents as far as like the best way to set up conversation with a kid? The best way to talk to your kid is however, they're most receptive to hearing you Mm -hmm. to having that interaction. And that means you might have to talk to them late at night when you'd rather go to sleep but they're Mm. geared up and ready to have that conversation. One of my kids, and I have three kids of my own, does almost all of her communicating about big things with me on text. Mm. And so that's how we talk when it's something that's bigger. At least that's how she tests the water a little bit. I have another kid who would call me 10 times a day, even though, you know, the stereotype is that teens aren't using their phones at all anymore. And then my third kid, the best time to talk to him is in the car as you've been told in the past. So it really just depends on when your kid is receptive. My favorite story is a family where the parent would make cookies at nine or 10 o'clock at night. She had four sons and like a Pied Piper, they would smell the cookies, come down, sit around the table and start talking. So, you know, whatever you have to do to connect with them without being overbearing, you don't want to constantly be saying to kids, you know, are you okay? Are you okay? I'm told Mm -hmm. all the time that they hate that. 
Mm, mm. Okay, good, good to know. Good to know. all right phyllis we're gonna take a quick break and then i have a bunch more questions to dive in with you on especially in this digital age since we're well beyond handwritten journals and letters to convey history the preservation of stories is so important especially from the moms and mom figures in our lives and if you've been looking for a way to collect those stories but aren't sure how to start i have a recommendation for you StoryWorth makes it easy Every week, they email a loved one of your choosing a question prompt that you pick. For example, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? And what aspects of having children didn't turn out the way you expected? Your loved one responds to that email with a story of any length. You will receive copies of these emails as they are submitted. And after one year, StoryWorth compiles the stories and any photos provided into a keepsake book. A friend recently shared how moving it was that her mom gifted copies of her StoryWorth album to immediate family members, a genius idea for expanding the preservation and sharing of those stories to people in different households and generations. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years, StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com edit. That's storyworth.com edit to save $10 on your first purchase. As you know, I am all about micro-improvements, and if you'd like to dedicate a little time each day to learn a language, I have a great solution for you. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app that offers 10-minute language lessons designed to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Materials are rooted in real-life situations, so you can learn important basics such as ordering food and asking for directions. Babbel offers personalized learning content, real-time feedback, tracking, and visualizations, and their speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. No matter what level you are looking for, casual, intense, or something in between, you can enjoy app lessons, podcasts, and live classes from the comfort of your home on your schedule. Here's a special limited-time deal for Edit Your Life listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription. This is only for Edit Your Life listeners at babbel.com slash edit. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash edit. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash edit. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hello, friends. We are back with the wonderful Phyllis Fagel, and we're going to dive into some specifics. Phyllis, your book is just loaded with so many gems, so many tips, so many concrete scenarios. I love also that you start each chapter with, you know, potential scenarios that parents can consider in each of the chapters. So thank you for, it just seemed like a lot of work went into this (laughs) to lay it all out. Now, I want to start with worst case scenarios. And I will just caveat as people on the show who've listened for some time know, I'm somebody who grew up with quite a bit of trauma and I have a tendency to catastrophize about things. And in your flexibility chapter, I would love for you to talk about why it's a useful exercise to have kids play out their worst case scenario in order to help them figure out how to move forward from it. You know, for a few reasons, we want kids to see problems as temporary and situational as opposed Mm -hmm. to permanent and pervasive. We don't want them to get, you know, stuck in the muck and feel like there's no point in doing anything to help themselves. And we know that when kids play out a scenario all the way to the end, not only do they often see that they could manage that fallout, that it's perhaps not as bad as they might have expected it to be, 
but they also feel those emotions in advance so that they can handle the actual situation with a little bit more bravery or a little bit more optimism, feeling less powerless. So to give an example, if a kid has been dropped by a group of friends, which is just a horrible, awful feeling in middle school, and it's that first day after that big blowout fight and they're walking into school, into the cafeteria for lunch, and all morning they've been dreading walking into that cafeteria because the usual table where they sit, which gave them some comfort, isn't going to feel as welcoming. And they're sure that if they walk into that cafeteria, they're going to be glared at by that group of friends. They're not going to know where to go. Nobody else is going to want them. They're going to feel awkward. They're going to be rejected and on and on. And if you actually walk them through that worst case scenario, probably what's going to happen is that they will realize that they're overinflating that risk. And it's not that we want to be Pollyanna and dismiss the fact that it's hard. It is hard. There's no question about it. But more likely, they're going to walk into that cafeteria. They are going to feel too uncomfortable to go over to the table where their old friends are. They might feel a little awkward going to another table. But those kids are extremely unlikely to get up and walk away Mm. or to tell them that they're not welcome at their table. And when you actually follow up and ask those kinds of specific questions, they realize that they have started spiraling in their own head and made it so much worse for themselves. Mm -hmm. Wait, so why do you say it's unlikely that the kids would actually react that way? Is it that kids are not actually that confrontational? I think in our minds, we think that like kids can be horribly mean and, and confrontational, but maybe it's just not like that. Odds are that if they sat down with a group of kids they're not friends with, there would be that awkward moment. Mm -hmm. where maybe they would look over and be like, what's she doing here? They might even quietly be thinking to themselves, oh, so now we're cool enough for her Mm -hmm. (laughs) or something along those lines. So I'm not saying that they won't be having thoughts that are problematic in terms of how that child might feel about those thoughts, but they're extremely unlikely to tell that person they're not welcome to sit at the table. For one, especially among girls in in this scenario, I was picturing a girl. Uh, Girls are much more conflict diverse than boys, Mm. you know, to overgeneralize a little bit, but also they are curious and (laughs) they want to know what's going on. And once the ice is broken, whether it's a little less awkward because everyone's talking at once or they have their food in front of them, that moment will pass. Mm. Mm. That's so, that's so good. Well, speaking of, um, you know, cafeteria tables and such, I love that you have a chapter on, you know, belonging, of course, it's, such a cornerstone of everything with with this age set. And I especially thought it was interesting and I was glad to see you cover positive intent because I think I actually think this is something that a lot of adults struggle with and is a skill that I have needed to work on a lot um, instead of assuming the worst. So why is it important to help kids learn to assume positive intent in the face of these difficult social situations? And then I love these tactical examples you're giving because it helps just kind of orient towards how to do that. So if you have a kid who's really down on a situation, how can you help them reframe that in a way that doesn't feel like you're dismissing their feelings? Sure. And one disclaimer that I always give to middle schoolers when I do the activity that I'm going to suggest parents try with their kids is that they don't have to believe the alternative examples I'm asking them to come up with. Mm -hmm. So if somebody excludes them from a party or from a hangout, let's say on a Friday night, and their assumption, and maybe they're coming home and 
telling their parent that they're sure that means this group has excommunicated them, that nobody likes them in that group, that they only want to get together to talk about them. You know, the list goes on of where you can take that in your mind if you're 12 years old or 13 years old. In that situation, what I would say to a kid is, I want you to think of three other possibilities that are more benign, that are not related to them hating you or looking to exclude you or talk about you. Nothing nefarious, you know, other than that might be why they didn't include you in that activity. And again, I tell them you don't have to believe them. And the reason I do this activity and the reason I tell them that the point isn't for them to come up with, you know, a different set of beliefs about the situation is because I'm trying to teach kids cognitive flexibility Mm -hmm. to help kids at a time when they go straight to the worst case scenario, understand that they can pull their thoughts back to the center. And when they do, and they have a more realistic appraisal of what's happening, they will suffer less. And often when I do this activity with kids, they do buy into the alternative scenario. Uh, As an example, a boy once was upset because everyone got together on a Friday night without him. And much like the example I just gave you, and he was sure they didn't want to be his friend. And when he went through this activity, he started out with the first reason being, well, maybe because they were all together at baseball practice, it just organically led to them hanging out. And before he even got to a second possibility, he looked up at me and he said, you know what? I actually think that's what probably happened. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it just didn't feel as grim and awful to him. Yeah, that's that's amazing. <laughs> Um, it's so good. And I, I've definitely found really thinking through those alternative scenarios is really important. Um, yeah, really good. I want to talk to you about boundaries. I feel like you could actually write a whole separate book about this. (laughs) (laughs) And it, it's also, I mean, boundaries are challenging for adults. All of these things are challenging for adults, but I think that figuring out how to handle peer relationships feels especially intense in the middle school years. Mm-hmm. So what would be a key piece of advice, a, a sample scenario, whatever you'd like to share for kids, especially who are struggling to put up what you call that force field when needed? You know, there are a couple of situations where this might come up. You know, one of the classic situations might be that your kid has an incredibly dramatic needy friend Mm. who's texting them late at night and kind of sucking the oxygen out of every room they enter. And it's exhausting for your child. And we have to remember that all kids are dealing with a lot, especially on the heels of the pandemic and just all of the uncertainty and churn in the world. There's no child who isn't heavily focused on dealing with their own issues. And it's a lot for them to take on their friends' problems. And It's also really hard for them to take a step back and tell that friend that they need a little space or that they need to go to sleep because all they're ever told is that they should be good and they should be kind Mm. and that you should be a good listener. And we forget to tell kids that you also have to make sure that there's some self-preservation involved that you can't give from an empty vessel. And especially now when I'm seeing an increase in things like suicidal ideation and cutting and eating disorders and all kinds of heavier issues in people's homes and lives. A lot of the times, not only is the child over involved and feeling overextended when a friend asks them to help with these situations, 
but they're also often doing more harm than good because all they're doing is preventing that child from getting the kind of specialized support they do need. And when we tell kids that it's the opposite of being nice, especially if the kid's friend has a big problem, that can help them shift their focus. And rather than being the receptacle for all of that pain to instead ask their friend something like, you know, that sounds terrible. Are you talking to someone about it? Or do you want me to help you talk to an adult about it? Do you want me to take you to the school counselor? And giving them some strategies, which might involve simply having them go to the counselor on their own and Mm -hmm. alerting an adult so that they can take a step back and feel like they've done their part. Yeah, that's excellent. It actually leads me to a follow up on that, which is the tricky situation for a kid when they think there's something serious happening. Mm -hmm. They bring it to you as the parent. And then, I mean, how do you navigate if you if you're the parent in that situation where your kid has told you that something you know, pretty serious is happening with their friend. I mean, is there, I know it's not going to be cut and dry all the time, but when do you give your kid space to try to support their friend to go get help? And then when do you step in parent to parent? Have you, I'm sure you've dealt with everything, but do you have any (laughs) thoughts about how to best deal with that so that the kid doesn't feel like you're, they're getting ratted out on, you know what I mean? This is one of those questions I get a lot. And what I tell parents is to pause for a second and ask yourself what you would want if your child was the one who is struggling. Mm -hmm. And most parents would say they wouldn't want someone to wait. They would want someone to alert them, to let them know, especially if it was a big problem or a serious problem. And often parents will go straight to the school to let them know, you know, and it might be something that's embarrassing. It could be, you know, your daughter or son has informed you that a friend is chronically shoplifting or Mm -hmm. cheating, you know, it could be anything along those lines and still, or, or maybe posting bad words on social media or, or pictures that they shouldn't post on social media. The list is endless of the ways kids can get themselves into hot water. And when you go straight to the school, you are letting them know, which is always helpful to have a sense of what's going on. But sometimes, especially if there's a relationship between the parents I'm often perplexed as to why parents wouldn't first call that friend, call that person in the community. And I think it can help as a school to front load some of those conversations to decide as a community how you want to handle it when it comes up. You know, do we want that call? Maybe even as a parent telling all of your kids, friends, parents that, you know, if they ever hear anything, you'd want to know so that they don't feel awkward making that call. Yeah, I think that's excellent. And, you know, the, I always feel like a lot of what can support kids is having those strong community relationships. And I think some of my favorite parent relationships have been the ones, even when we weren't especially, you know, buddy, buddy and hanging out all the time, but we just had basic ground rules that, you know, if you see my kid doing something not great, (laughs) like out there, like, I want to know about it. Don't try to hide it from me. And I think just being open about those things in support of one another, you know, obviously not in a shaming way is, is a really good way to go. Yes. And just understanding that every single kid is going to make some mistakes in middle school or get mm-hmm. find themselves in situations that are hard to navigate. And it really does take a village. Parents can talk to coaches. They can talk to teachers, administrators, counselors, if they have a sense that something might be off, but they don't know what it is. They can talk to their kids' friends' parents as well. And I think the more we have that open communication and that understanding that every single kid is going to need some extra support at some point during these years, the less defensive we'll feel when we do get that call. Mm, Yeah, that's wonderful. 
Okay, we are going to take a quick break and we will be back with a few more questions for Phyllis Fagel. Did you know that hyaluronic acid naturally occurs in our skin but decreases gradually as we age, leading to thinner, drier skin? If you're looking for support hydrating your skin from the inside out, check out one of the tools in my hydration arsenal, Rituals Hyacera, which I take every morning. Rituals products are tested and validated by a third party for allergens, microbes, and heavy metals, and Hyacera is clinically proven to reduce fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. They also engage in industry-leading sustainability standards and are a female-founded B Corp, which means they hold themselves accountable to not just their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. Want to join me in hydrating from the inside out? Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com edit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com edit for 25% off. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you struggle with boundaries and the general complexities of peopling? Relationships are necessary to our well-being and some relationships are just, well, complicated. A good chunk of the work I have done in therapy centers on relationships, how to own my part of the story, how to let go of relationships that are toxic, and how to navigate challenging relationships in a way that doesn't drain me. And all of this work helps me show up better for myself and also as a partner, mom, friend, family member, and business owner. If you're thinking of starting therapy, check out BetterHelp. This online therapy platform was designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash edit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash edit. Hello, friends. We are back and we are talking all about tweens. I love tweens, Phyllis. I don't know about, I mean, you work with them all the time, but <laughs> I, I don't know. I love them and I have so much gratitude for the fact that my tween has such a great community and group of friends. So let's talk about empathy. I feel like a lot of problems in the world could be solved if everyone learned about empathy <laughs> early on. So can you explain the importance of helping kids build cognitive empathy and maybe even define that for people and a key simple tactic for doing so? So cognitive empathy is the ability to really understand why someone might be feeling a certain way. It doesn't mean you have to deal with them, but you can really understand why they might be stressed about a specific situation or why something might put somebody in a difficult situation and be able to offer them support with that understanding. So it has a big, uh, it has a lot to do with stepping into someone else's shoes, mm. whereas affective empathy is feeling with them. And especially when it comes to that online piece where people are interacting with one another without the benefit of eye contact or face-to-face -face interactions, and it's a lot easier to make a mistake or to say something that's cruel without realizing that it's cruel or to try to be funny and it lands mean. You really have to have that ability to understand how other people are feeling to not only make good decisions, but to set those boundaries we talked about earlier, to make good friend choices, to figure out who makes you feel comfortable. 
recognizing it in others as well as being able to exhibit it yourself. Yeah, that's great. That's great. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, well, speaking of empathy, because I think it pairs with this question I want to ask you, you know, we talk about vulnerability and it being important. It's really hard. And I think it can especially be hard for kids in this sort of you go girl, crush it kind of high, highlight real culture, I think anyway. So can you share a simple and effective way? I don't know if it's an exercise that you would do, recommend parents do with their kids, but how to communicate to kids why vulnerability actually matters. So first, going back to the developmental phase, when you think about this age group, they're really bad at recognizing what's happening in their internal life. Mm. Even if they can recognize that they're feeling stressed or overwhelmed, they have a hard time drilling down and having that expansive feelings vocabulary you need to know what it is that you are experiencing so that you can find the right solution. And Three, even if they know that they are suffering and they can figure out why, it's not intuitive to ask for help. So it's really important that we are helping our kids expand that vocabulary, recognize when their feelings go beyond that normal, the normal mood fluctuations of puberty, and then helping them know when, how, and whom they should ask for help. And much of the time, it's an adult. So I love to ask kids who would you go to in a crisis? And earlier in this conversation, you had asked me about parents who brought their own struggles to the table. And I want to rem- remind parents that you don't have to be everything to your kid. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if there's something that a child might worry will make them drop a notch in their parents' eyes, or if they think their parent isn't at their peak and they don't want to overtax them with their own emotional burdens, they may not bring that problem to you. And so we want to be very explicit when we say, you know, who is the adult you would go to in a crisis? And it doesn't have to be me. In fact, who else beyond me, even if it is me, would you go to in that crisis? And we want them to be coming up with those names at a time when they're not in crisis, when they're thinking clearly. Oh, yeah, that's really good. And um, you mentioned about identifying feelings and is the and I'm somebody as an adult has had to work on not being an emotional robot. And I actually have a children's feelings poster in my office, you know, the kind with the faces and the. I love labels. that. But um, would you recommend something similar, like a feelings wheel or what, what's your general like 101 entry if a parent's like, well, how am I going to teach my kid about feelings? I don't know. I don't know how to do that. You know, that's a really good point. If that's something that you need to work on yourself, you can't really support someone else if you don't have that vocabulary yourself. So getting in the habit of practicing. And maybe that does involve using a feelings wheel and a feelings wheel for those who haven't seen one, they're easily searchable. It breaks down emotions into different categories. So it will have the big ones, you know, happy, sad, angry, silly, mad, whatever. And then it drills down to things like disappointed, tired, lonely, disgusted, and helping kids figure out what exactly they're feeling with precision can help them figure out what they need to do about it. So you can say to your kid, you know, it seems like you might be feeling lonely if it seems that they're sad and they haven't yet figured out what's going on. And the beautiful thing about trying to label a kid's feeling is that they are the expert in their own life. Thank you very much. And if you get it wrong, they're going to correct you. And that means that either way you get information and it may actually help them develop that self-awareness. They may not have known until you said the wrong emotion that it was something different and been able to pinpoint it. But once they can say, yeah, you know what? I am lonely. 
then they can say, maybe I should call a friend mm. rather than, you know, scrolling mindlessly through other people's, uh, you know, snaps, feeling crappy about your own life. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Well, Phyllis, we have to wrap things up. And before before we, I ask you my last question, I just want to encourage people to order your book, <laughs> Middle School Superpowers, Raising Resilient Tweens in Turbulent Times, because as I said at the beginning, I had like a million questions I could have could have asked you. And this book is packed with great stuff. So I feel like we we're just scratching the surface, which, you know, is kind of the point. I want to te- tease out the book, but I just really want to underscore that this is such a fantastic book. And Phil, I'm super proud of you. <laughs> I don't know if Thank that's you. weird to say that online, but I am <laughs> really proud all. of you and proud to know you. It's so great. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So for my last question, I always close the show with what is called your next edit. And it's like the next edit, something the listeners can do. It's a really actionable tip, a favorite tip of yours that listeners can consider doing after they finish listening to our conversation. So in the context of our conversation, what would you recommend as your next edit for listeners? Oh, I love that question. And I think I'd probably give a different answer depending on the day. But one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is how we go straight to assuming a kid has a mental health problem if they seem to be struggling, that they're depressed or that they're anxious. And what we often discount in this age group is the importance of skill building, things like teaching them executive functioning or teaching them social skills. And so my tip is to really take a hard look at your kid's strengths and weaknesses. And if for instance, they're socially awkward, teach them how to enter a conversation. You know, you might say, listen long enough to know what they're talking about, wait for a pause, ask a question related to what they're talking about and see how that goes. If they're disorganized, you might have a one sheet piece of paper that they binder clip to the front of their calendar. So they're only looking at one day at a time, whatever happens to work for them and see how that impacts them emotionally. I think once you help kids develop the skills that that they need to feel less awkward or to feel less overwhelmed, that often takes care of a good deal of the emotional issues that are leaking out at the end as a result of the skills deficit. Oh my gosh, that is fantastic. And I'm going to orient my thinking towards that. (laughs) That's awesome. Phyllis, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to connect with you and to talk to you. I always love talking to you. And I just, you were a fountain of wisdom always. And I think this book is going to help so many parents of middle schoolers. So thank you for writing it. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me on. All right, take care. Okay, friends, you will find the show notes for this episode, including links to resources and related episodes at edityourlifeshow.com. As ever, I would love to hear your thoughts and questions. Come say hello on Instagram or Facebook at Edit Your Life Show or send an email to edityourlifeshow at gmail.com. I would also be grateful if you would drop Edit Your Life a review on Apple Podcasts or tell a pod-loving friend about the show. Thanks for listening. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, 
we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.